Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can see your credit score right now, absolutely free. Just text MONEY to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. Again, text the word MONEY to 89800. And we are sponsored by Goldman Sachs. Information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast exchanges at goldman sachs look it up on itunes it's genuinely a really good podcast and by braintree if you're working on an app and searching for a payment solution check out braintree simple integration you can offer your customers every way to pay period to learn more and for fifty thousand dollars in fee-free transactions go to braintreepayments.com slash slate money Hello, and welcome to the migration edition of Slate Money. We pride ourselves here at Slate Money on talking about the business and finance news of the week. And the business and finance news of the week is all about the stock market, so we are not going to talk about the stock market (laughs) at all. (laughs) Because you've heard far too much about the stock market, and everything we could possibly say about the stock market, you have already heard, and it's all noise, and you you should just tune it all out. Ignore everything, and pay attention instead to our discussion this week, which is all about migration, immigration. This is a hot issue, what with the Republican presidential primaries and whatnot. I am, of course, Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello. Hello, Kathy. And it's so nice to have you back in the studio. Um, we have four of us in the studio this week. We have me, we have Kathy, we have Jordan Weisman. Hello. Um, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. But we also have Suresh Naidu. Hello. Hello, Suresh. Now, Suresh used to be a college radio DJ. Um, <laughs> he is... He, is, That's why he's here. That's he really is, the only reason he's here. Uh, but, but more to the point, he's an economist at Columbia University. But more to the point, we now have a proper 50% 
representation of migrants in this studio. Um, so Harish and I are both what you might call first-generation immigrants to the USA. I came from the UK, and Suresh came from... Canada. The great white north. North North Dakota. One day... <laughs> Uh, we were going to have a Canada special edition. We, we still are going to have a Canada special edition at some point, maybe after the election. I'm really looking forward to that because it turns out there's this whole country to the north of the USA, Who which knew? no one in America really ever thinks about. But it's a fascinating country. Anyway, we are going to talk about some of the, the politics of immigration. We're going to talk about visas, American visas, especially H-2s and H-1s for unskilled and skilled workers um, respectively. But first, I think it might be helpful to us to take a quick sort of 50,000 foot overview of migration and immigration and whatnot. Hey, everyone. This Slate Money Immigration special was recorded before news broke this week about the migrant deaths in Austria and in the Mediterranean. So just a heads up, that's why we don't make mention of those stories during this conversation. Okay. So I... I did a very quick Google before this, and there are 232 million migrants in the world. That's people who were born in one country and live in another country. That's about 3% of the world's population. And about half of those, about 136 million of them, are in the developed world or in the OECD. And of those, about 11% are unemployed. Um, and about 28 million of them, this is a large number of people, have tertiary education, you know, college graduates, what you might call skilled migrants. Um, the biggest recipient of migrants in the world is, you will probably not be surprised to hear, the United States, um, which has 46 million migrants, uh, about 20% of the total. Um, but in percentage terms... Uh, the United Arab Emirates is basically three-quarters migrants. 74% hmm. um, of the population is migrants. The most out-migration, the, the country with the most migrants in the world who don't live in their native country is India, followed by Mexico, followed by, and I don't think anyone's going to guess this one, Russia, interestingly enough. Is that from, like, the battle days of the end of the Soviet Union and everyone just fled, or is it... No, no, Russia. It's not Soviet or Union. It's Russia. Specifically it's... Russia. Yeah. Okay, which is Which is surprising because it has a pretty small population to begin with. Um, and we're... So, anyway... That's a lot of migrants. That's a lot of migrants, but it's not that much. 3% is a lot in absolute terms. I mean, but... So, Gallup has this poll. Like, if you, if you do a survey, like, 40% of adults in the developing world say that they would want to move countries permanently. So just those are the actual migrants. The number of people that want to migrate is a lot larger. What is this compared to, like, historical trends? I mean, one of the things that we're going to talk about today in our episode is rules about migration, right? Like borders and closed borders and stuff like that. But, you know, it strikes me that my country, United States, is a land of migrants, right? We we developed our population by having my, my ancestors came from the Irish potato more, famine. More than almost any other country. It's, it's a nation of immigrants. Right. Um, but, you know, we are thinking very much these days in terms of nation states. Historically, that wasn't really how people thought. There were no such thing as passports, you know, back in the sort of, you know, 18th century, you just uh, sort of go on tours. But you'd be surprised, like in a lot of um, feudal Europe, for example, you needed papers 
Um, and that's the origin of passport was that you had to pass through the city doors and you needed to show your papers that were granted to you by your lord. Um, and so actually the, the, the idea that and when you have tons and tons of little principalities and so you needed papers to pretty much go anywhere. And it's one of the big wins of the Magna Carta was actually uh, freeing certain merchants from from needing these papers. But, you know, it wasn't sort of enshrined in national law to the same extent. One of my favorite ever things was looking through an old Baidecker guide to Europe from the um, late 19th century. This is like the old, you know, I guess like the Fodors of its day. And this is what you would take when you went on the Grand Tour around Europe if you were an English tourist. And it had a nice little phrase book in it. And one of the phrases was, Good afternoon. I am the Duke of blank. I would like to please present to you a letter of introduction from my uncle, the Earl of blank. And that's basically how it used to work. That's so, a really so, good audience targeting. <laughs> like they really knew who their market was. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's exactly Micro, my next question is yeah. like, was traveling through countries in the past, was that something that only rich people did? Like it's the only, it's, it's only rich people could afford to they do it. It was very hard because you were, especially when you're, job is tied to the land when you're, you know, farming your land. Well, let's not forget that, like, a lot of European history is marked by massive land warfare that displaced a lot of people and had massive refugee movements throughout Europe. Like, lots of people just were uprooted and had to move. And so there, I wouldn't say that it's not, a, it's not as many as, say, today, but post-World War II, we have a refugee crisis in Europe, for sure, where you have to resettle massive numbers of people. Um, and all throughout. So I, I don't think it's just the case that rich people had to move, but uh, rich people could move voluntarily, but lots of poor people had to move as a result. Well, isn't of, that more 20th century thing? It is more of a... I, so I just... I don't think we have any data, or I don't know of any data, but it seems to me unlikely that all of these wars that are happening in Europe are not generating uh, refugee movements. So this is the f- question, the first question which I have for you, Suresh, which is, um, economically speaking... Presumably, in most of the time, migration is a voluntary thing where people move from a place where they don't want to be to a place where they'd rather be and they have the means to move. And it's sort of, I kind of have this sort of gut feeling that economically it's a good thing. But then we also have 60 million forcibly displaced people in the world. We have 20 million refugees in the world. Turkey alone has one and a half million refugees, mostly from Syria. Um, Is there a very sort of big economic difference between migrants and refugees, or are they just different words from kind of the same phenomenon? Uh, Well, I mean, certainly in the case of the actual composition of the population, it is very different. Like, refugees don't get to choose. There's no selection, really, into the refugee population the way there is into the migrant population. They're also much younger. 51% of refugees are under 18. I don't know. Is that do we know that about the migrant population? Are they? Well, I mean, that's certainly got to be true just because refugees are coming from places that are have very skewed demographics and are experiencing, you know, war. So they don't get to. They're not getting to choose. But is a, a refugee movement, I guess my question is economically negative while migration in general is economically positive? I don't know that we can really say because it really depends on the characteristics of the migrants. So if you have migrants that look a lot like the refugee population, then I think 
that wouldn't be the case. And we'll see that there's really heterogeneous migration selection, right? So the kinds of migrants you get coming in from the border from, from, from like when you actually are bordering a third world country, they're going to look a lot closer to like, a, uh, you know, there's just going to be lots of people that want to come, while the migrants that are going to be coming from like a country that you have to get on an airplane to get over to, it's going to look very different. Right. And I think, you know, being English, I can remember, well, not remember, but it's, it's kind of remember, it's sort of in the institutional history of while I was growing up, the huge number of sort of subcontinental refugees who were coming from Uganda during like the Idi Amin times, and they were fantastic for the British economy. There was no sense that that was not an economically positive thing. And I think just when we think of like this old idea in economics that like the ultimate resource is people, that when you like have lots of people, they're generating new ideas, they're starting businesses, there's just like lots of sources in which like people um, are actually the source of most economic growth. And so, you know, we're well out of the realms of Malthusian realms where like people was like a negative for your income. I think we're in in kinds of economies where like people are actually the asset you want. Okay. So we are sponsored by Credit Karma. I know that there are a certain number of you out there who have some kind of subscription product you are paying for your credit score. You want to know what your credit score is and you are paying money to get it. Stop doing that. You do not need to pay to get your credit score. What you need to do is sign up for Credit Karma. It's just an app. It's very simple. There's no catch. Everything on their site is free. They will show you the score and then they will help you try and work out what it means. There's a lot of useful information on this site, but mostly if you want your credit score, don't pay for it. Get it for free. Text money to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. You'll get free credit monitoring as well. So if something fishy happens, you can check your report and see if it's legit. Text money to 89800. Kathy. Yeah. What Suresh just said about people being the ultimate resource and we should all just want lots of people and America was built on migrants, that's not really the way that political discourse works in America Do you think we could ask um, Donald Trump to be our guest next week? I think he would probably say no. (laughs) never know. The man likes press. He does like press. (laughs) That would be awesome. Can we bring Suresh back too and like I'll squeeze around the little table? Felix, think Um, big. Be a winner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, Suresh, tell me tell me more about um, why we should care about immigration. Tell me tell me what the kinds of like, when do we close our borders and why? Or did we close our borders? I yeah. feel like the or borders did we close are still our What's going open? on? Suresh, explain it to us. All right. Well, I mean, I'm just one guy. But uh, <laughs> uh, so the reason I care, though, is like partly I work on development economics. And when I had to think of like, forget almost any development intervention you can think of. It's all swamped by opening the border. If you really wanted to make a difference in like global poverty, one of the biggest things you could do would be to let more people in. So we, we think that it's a good let, thing. Wait, let more people into impoverished countries. No, no, let more people into the first world countries. Let, me, let more people out of impoverished yes, countries. Yes. Like if, if the people leave the impoverished country, then they're not impoverished anymore because they're in a rich country like the US. No, and they're, like, their earnings, that physical person's earnings will like go up by at least a factor of like four or five. Okay, they they, they but, become more productive. Like, yes, they're working yeah, with like the, uh, first world capital stocks, first world technologies. For, uh, but how does that, and, and that helps the country they leave, what, because they uh, have remittances I mean, back? do we care? I mean, it might, but I think we ultimately care about the people, right? Like, 
we care about whether or not people are rich or poor. And so if people leave and are able to earn a lot more money, wouldn't we think that that's good independent Wait, of the I'm, country? I'm going to take the Trump stance here. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to push back and I'm going to say, hey, those guys, they might be better off individually, but aren't they making us worse off as Americans when they come and take our jobs and not pay taxes? I, I feel like that. Wait, 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 are, wait. are you setting yourself up as a straw man? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Even Donald Trump doesn't say that yeah. migrants don't pay taxes. Yeah. But, that, oh. but, but there is a strong case that especially low-skilled immigration does take jobs from low-skilled Americans. I I actually think the evidence is pretty weak on that front in almost every which way you look at it. I can get into the details of how if you define a labor market by like location versus skill group, you get different effects. But I think if it was so obvious that migrants were like reducing uh, native-born employment, we would it would be jumping out of the data, and it so, doesn't jump out of the data. So you have to our, do stuff. Our audience does like to get pretty nerdy here, and oh, I yeah? think actually it is kind of worth getting into some of the details about why, um, about the way you look at this problem. And, and basically, I mean, my understanding, let me run it by you and, and you can tell me if I'm right and wrong, is that the studies that show that, for instance, Mexican immigrants have taken, essentially taken jobs from low-wage American workers. And when you say low-wage, we're basically talking people without a high school education who dropped out. They tend to look at a very static labor market. They don't really look at feedback effects, which is they just say, "Okay, well, this guy, there were these number of jobs. Now the immigrants have X percentage of them and the low wage Americans are X percent are unemployed. The ones that show a net benefit for everyone tend to look at a dynamic labor market where you get these feedback effects. It's like, well, the immigrant came and now there's more money in the economy. And so there are more jobs. That's how I've learned the distinction. I'm wondering if that's an accurate way of looking at it. So I would say the, the some of the most recent research by by Giovanni Perry at UC Davis um, sort of points to actually a, a, an even more nuanced story about like task special, specialization. So what happens is that you have low wage migrants they come in and they fill a certain part of the task distribution, but tasks are complementary. So when you have more people that are like working, say as uh, dishwashers in the back, that means that like some of those natives that would be working dishwasher jobs go into the go into the front of the uh, front end of the house. Okay. And so there's complementarities across these tasks that sort of mean that like the natives actually benefit from the migrants, just not in the same tasks that they were doing beforehand. I see. And and Suresh, didn't you have some um, sort of natural experiments that just happened to to sort of exemplify this question? There's, there's a number, actually. So, like, for example, Switzerland opened, uh, did a very substantial liberalization of its border inside Europe, and so was opened itself to, like, a lot of migration f- uh, from Europe. There's the Marielle boat lift, which is a classic uh, natural, it was one of the first uh, natural experiments in the immigration literature, where Castro lets, uh, I think, like, 200,000-ish uh, people leave Cuba in the early 80s, and they all show up in Miami. And yet we saw no negative effect on employment or wages of native-born Miamians relative to Atlanta and other cities nearby. And so that sort of result kind of by David Card sort of stimulated a whole literature on like looking at what were the, uh, what, you know, supply and demand, come on, what's, what's going on here? And so there's, there's like a sort of back and forth in the literature a little bit about, um, about whether or not migration lowers wages, but it's really hard to find an effect. Um, and let me ask you as well, since we're talking a lot about low-skilled immigrants, um, what is the H-2 visa? Because I feel like I know a fair amount about immigration, and uh, the two of us have both been through the whole visa process in the United States, which is a nightmare. And 
you know, I know about the I's and the J's and the E's and the O's and, you know, all of these things. And then suddenly, and of course, the H1. But then I just learned about this thing called the H2, which is, it sounds unspeakable. Um, yeah. So the H2A is the Agricultural Temporary Worker Visa Program which basically uh, it's largely designed for agricultural work, hence the A. And uh, so what happens is that employers make offers to people with um, in developing countries generally, and they um, and when you get the get the job, you're eligible for the visa. And so uh, and then you come and you work on the fields in California, up and down the northwest, a lot in the, in the Gulf states uh, in the not the Gulf the Gulf Coast of the US. Louisiana. Yeah. Louisiana, yeah. <laughs> um, although that's interesting about the Gulf. St- <laughs> the, yeah, really. They have their own guest worker program, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, and as, as I don't know if people have seen this, like, recent BuzzFeed article on, like, kind of these atrocious conditions under the H-2A and some of these H-2A visa uh, workers sort of face because, you know, the conditions of the H-2A visa mean that you're tied to a particular employer and you're not protected under uh, U.S., you know, the NLRB, the NLRB or anything. You have no uh, sort of the normal U.S. labor rights. So the condition, like the conditions that you read about in that BuzzFeed article, which we're going to put on our Web page for this show, were really atrocious. So you, you really can't believe that happened in the United States. You had people like basically... Uh, imprisoned. I mean, you might even say enslaved and working for this money that sounded fair, but all sorts of things were playing. They were playing with the money and they were charging them to stay in these terrible conditions. Um, it was really horrible. Um, I guess there was the recent um, court that actually awarded some damages to some Indian workers that were working um, in the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. But it just, it brings up the following question. Um, You say immigration is good, but I guess it's not always good. It's like, it's, there's one thing to let people in the country. There's another thing to give them working conditions or give them rights, right? So that's a separate question. It is, and it's an, I don't think it's obvious what the right trade-off is. Like, so there's generally this, this idea that in this Book, for example, The Price of Rights, that sort of points out that when you look around the world, there seems to be a trade-off between how many people you let in and how well you treat them when they're here, when they're in your country. And so, you know, the, the Middle Eastern so Gulf... So the more, the more people you let in, the less well you treat them? Is yes. that the way it works? Yeah. And so the Gulf countries clearly drive this, right? They but, let in... Like Canada is an exception to this rule, is it? It might not? be, yeah. I think a lot of this correlation is driven by some of the, uh, some of the Gulf countries. It's just that right. they let in so many people and they treat them fairly poor and they don't give them very many rights. But I think even in the developed countries that do let in a lot, like Canada and things, they don't give migrants eligibility for various welfare state things or uh, like the, the right to vote or anything. They, and in, in the temporary guest workers in in Canada which we which we have and that was actually how I got into this I worked on one of these farms when I was in college and uh they uh, you know, they're again on these. They're tied to particular employers. They're they don't have the regular rights of like Canadian workers. And so, uh, I think I think that trade off still does exist. I want to talk a little bit about my experience as a indentured, um, but not lo- low skill. Well, <laughs> but I, I'm what are you gonna, saying, but Kathy? First, what you saying? first, I want I need to tell you about Braintree, which is code for easy online payments. If you're putting together an app, and who isn't putting together an app these days? Everyone's putting together an app, and you want your users in that app to be able to pay you. And the best way to do that is to sign up for Braintree. It's very simple. They have excellent customer service. It's 
used by Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight. Big companies trust it because they know what they're doing. They can do it for you. It's what's known as a full stack payment solution. It sounds like jargon, but trust me, it's what you want. It, it will accept PayPal. It will accept Apple Pay. It will accept Bitcoin. Whatever you want, it's there. And you can get $50,000 in transactions fee-free. If you go to braintreepayments.com slash slate money. With that said, I want to tell you about my H visa. Now, there's a there's a second version of the H visa, which is much more common. We're not more there people fewer know about them. it, yeah. but there are fewer of them called the H one. Um, and I came in, I I came to America on an H one visa, and it works in many ways the same as the H two in that you're tied to an employer, and you don't have various bargaining rights. I think they scratched a lot of those in 2000. There was a reform of the H-1B in 2000 that liberalized it considerably. But you still can't change jobs. You still can't change jobs without permission. of. And and it, and it raises this question of illegal immigration. Um, I was working, actually I got a couple of H visas along the way. Um, but the second company I worked for on an H visa was this company called Bridge News, which one day, because I was, you know, incompetent or for some other reason, decided to fire me. Um, and this was fascinating from a legal perspective. And, I, you know, since we have Suresh I'll just ask you. Um, if I'm working for Bridge News perfectly legally on an H visa, and then one day they fire me, am I an illegal immigrant, like, immediately? Am I out of status and undocumented? When do I start becoming, you know, one of these people who Donald Trump is railing against? Uh, yeah, so this is actually one of the things that got reformed was that you didn't have to immediately leave, um, and I forget, and I don't know exactly what the uh, what the what the duration is, but you do need to pick up another employer post haste, which and, is not easy when you don't have a work authorization. Yeah, so one of the things your employer needs to do for you is get you a work authorization. So, for example, I'm also on an H-1B with Columbia University. Um, so, so, you know, they own me body and soul. Um, <laughs> and, uh, 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 but in fact, when I was doing a visiting, uh, uh, appointment somewhere else, I had to, um, I had to get work authorization and it was like paperwork and blah, blah, blah. And luckily Columbia has people to deal with that, but most small employers don't. And so you can imagine it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big house. So one of my friends who's a data scientist worked at a shop, a data science shop, we'll call it. Um, almost everyone there was Asian. And he was under the impression um, that they were all they all had H-1 visas. They were all scared shitless that they were going to get fired and have to leave. And they were just doing everything they could. They never complained about wages. They never complained about unrealistic expectations of hours. And it really seemed like this is a this is actually a kind of a loophole that employers can take advantage of uh, for like for nerd nerds that come over with H one visas. And the question I was interested in is to what extent is that normal? It, it's sort of like the analogous thing to, that we saw with the H two visas, where you're exploiting workers because of this insecurity they have. And, and the question is, is that also true in H one visas? I, I mean, I think that's a pretty. I'm going to jump in, but it's, it's a pretty raging debate. Um, there's a reason the H one B has become like the H-1B visa has become a, a sort of target for liberals, sort of liberal anti or Im liberal immigration skeptics, in part because a lot of their constituents tend to be very highly educated workers who feel threatened about it. Um, and we should say the vast majority of these go to the, the tech industry. That's it's, you know, 
it's widely looked at as a program that is now used to import computer programmers. Uh, Microsoft is a heavy user. Um, at the same time, uh, other heavy users are outsourcing companies um, that are based in India, like Cognizant, um, which essentially like to cycle through their workers into the U.S. so that they can learn uh, how their clients work and then bring that knowledge back to India. And that, more than anything, is actually, I think, what people consider the biggest problem, because technically you are not supposed to fire a worker uh, to hire an H-1B. Um, that is one of the rules you're supposed to attest to. Uh, I should, that's a very, I, I feel bad about the way I just phrased it. I said an H-1B as if that is a kind of person to hire a, someone on an H-1B visa. Uh, however, uh, if you fire your IT staff and then hire an outsourcing company to then take over, who then relies almost entirely on people who are here on H-1B visas or people who are back in India, then you've kind of found a loophole. So there are these issues uh, with it, I think. That, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing I think that is like a legitimate criticism of the H-1B is just, again, the exemption from like a lot of the uh, labor rights that or like that 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 you have in the in the U.S. So you don't get to form a, you know, you're you're, you're not necessarily guaranteed the rights of, under unionization that, you know, you can uh, if you try to form a union and you're on H-1B visas, you're you know, that that makes things complicated if you. Uh, you you again you're still tied to an employer kind of thing and so i think a lot of the the like lefties are like not necessarily opposed to h1b's but they're opposed to an h1b program that like has this like tied to an that has no employer mobility and are like not sort and of respecting free it, association it's what's known in the the term of art is it's a non-immigrant visa and i can tell you you know you could, you can be and like i was in the united states for 6 years on this non-immigrant visa and if you've been living in a country for 6 years that's where you live that's your home and i would come into jfk bearing my non-immigrant h1b visa and they would say like where do you live and they and i would say you know Avenue B in New York City and they'd be like no where is your legal permanent residence and I'm like and that became this incredibly difficult question for me to answer because as far as I was concerned my permanent residence was New York I'd been living in New York for six years but they as you know legally I, I guess I was still living in England yeah <laughs> it brings up um, Jordan's point brings up a, a, another issue which I think is a big political issue with respect to jobs and immigration but it's the it's the offshoring issue you know we it, you know you mentioned that the more people we bring in the worse we t we treat them but is it also true that the more we offshore the fewer immigrants the more jobs we offshore the fewer immigrants we bring in what's the relationship no, between I, I can't those two things point. No, I think these are like two forms of globalization, right? So you can think of like globalization where capital goes hunting for the cheapest labor, or you can think of immigration where like labor goes hunting for the highest wages. And uh, and what's sort of interesting is that we have, we focus so much on like capital and product market liberalization that we sort of ignored these giant wedges in the global labor market where it's like the same person. We know this from like randomized experiments. Like you can literally take the same person in, on the H-1B, take them from the exact same company in India and in the U.S., and their wages, like, go up by a factor of, I forget, it's like two to five or something like that. And uh, and so it's just, you know, the fact that you can, um, uh, let, that you can make people earn so much more by opening the border... Uh, suggest that like maybe we've been looking at the wrong places for like the real returns to globalization by focusing on like product and 
product market and capital market, when really what a form of globalization that actually has some of the biggest overall returns is like is uh, labor market liberalization. So Suresh, I, I last week I teased this episode by saying that Germany announced that this year it's going to take in 800,000 migrants, which is it's a refugees, huge... refugees, isn't it? It's, well, I mean, you can call them what you want to call them. But, um, but the question is, like, is there a point at which uh, an influx of often kind of, you know, people who are in a bad place in terms of their personal lives, you know, and hundreds of thousands of them all pouring into a country at the same time, might not have a positive economic effect. So I don't. Uh, so I think it, it, there there might be some short run negative effects, but I think it's like in the long run, I don't actually see very um, economically. I don't see the negative effects. I think politically and socially, you can totally understand there being like worries about negative effects due to either crime or politics or. Uh, or or just like nativism sort of uh, erupting. But I think in terms of if those problems aren't there, then having more people in an economy, in a dynamic sort of capitalist economy, that should result in like more economic so growth. So let me ask you about nativism. And this is something which every country I've ever lived in and every country I've ever visited has had, you know, nativist politicians who start scaremongering about immigration. Is there any correlation between the amount of immigration that a country has and the degree of nativist politics in that country? So it turns out to be a little actually really interesting, like who's nativist and who isn't. And it depends on. And so there's uh, uh, some work on this by uh, Anna Maida, uh at, at George Georgetown, I think. Can I can I just say na- nativist define it just people who don't like immigrants? Is that what that means? That sounds uh, about right. Uh, that okay. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's got a it's got a good ring to it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, it turns out it actually depends on where you sit in your country's economic skill, spectrum uh, at relative to the skill distribution of the migrants that's coming in. Um, so when you're like. If you have, if you're really high skilled in a country that is facing a lot of, that has very few skilled workers and is facing a lot of influx of skilled migrants, you tend to not like migration. Ah, the H one visa problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you're like a uh, an uh, a skilled worker in a country that's like facing a lot of uh, like unskilled migration, then you're like cool. <laughs> That that would be someone like George W. Bush, who grows up being, you know, a sort of upper middle class guy in Texas, and he sees all of the immigration, you know, coming in from Mexico and helping the Texan economy, and he's perfectly happy about that. And then he suddenly needs to sort of improbably change his tune to to fit with the Republican Party, but, which is less happy. But what's also sort of interesting is that this is when when you look at this data, the economic things that you can actually use to explain the amount of variation in opinions about migration is tiny relative to like all of these other cultural and demographic variables. So it's like trying to reduce the problem of immigration to pure economics. While I would love to do it, I think it's difficult to do. And if you look at somewhere like Poland, which has almost no immigration and yet a massive sort right. of racist <laughs> anti-immigrant tendency, the one thing which is absolutely clear is that if you reduce the amount of immigration, that does not reduce the amount that people dislike immigration or think that it's dangerous or hurting the country. Yeah, and I was actually... You know, in some ways, the U.S. Um, is an exception here, too, at least to the trend that you described, which is 
you know, again, the the immigrants come tend to come here on the very low end of the wage scale, like the really unskilled agricultural workers and the very high end, the H-1B uh, applicants. Um, they're not so much middle class workers. You see, and that's I'm I'm going to disagree with you. Well, there. I mean, that's that's how our immigration system really has been set up. No, you look but at the, okay. I'm going to disagree with you there. Okay. And I'm going to say that, yes, if you look at your H visas, the H-1 is skilled, the H-2 is unskilled. But the overwhelming majority of immigration into the U.S. is not on non-immigrant visas. The overwhelming majority of immigration into the U.S. is good old-fashioned. I have family in the U.S. and they bring family over. And if your family, if you're a middle-class person in America and you're bringing your family yeah. over from India but or China, e- it's likely to be middle-class. Even, but no, no. But even if you look at the fact, oh, yes, we do family reunification. But even if you look at that, you're still at the low end of the wage scale. That really is where I don't think so. I, uh, I'm not sure, actually. Um, so I don't have the data off the top of my head, but I, I, it would be difficult, right? Because chances are your family abroad re- looks pretty close to you in the income distribution. And so if unless you think there are, there are all family reunifications coming from the low end and the high end from people that have like moved up through the non-immigrant visas into green cards, into citizenship, and then are like trying to reunify, which does happen. But I don't think that's the bulk of the family reunifications, at least from the studies out there. The people who are affected or whose wages are affected by immigration or may be affected by immigration tend to be on the low end and the high end. However, there is an enormous amount of middle class resistance to immigration in the United States politically. And so the cultural factors seem to track much more with the way we treat it here than the economics. So... Yeah, I think that's fair. I think there's other contexts where, like, you do see, like, I think the Switzerland study did find an effect on, like, uh, middle class workers getting displaced by, like, within Europe migration. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the point on the U.S. being um, largely. And the last thing I wanted to uh, bring up, which which just came up very slightly just now, is that the, the, the point I was making at the beginning, this is a country of immigrants, is that you come in as low-skill workers. Your children are middle class. I mean, that is the American dream. And that that is still true. Is it? Is it really? Or do people now increasingly come in as middle class? I mean, you know, Suresh and I both came in as middle I'm class. I'm not saying people who don't come in middle class don't stay middle class. I'm saying and, that, and people I mean, who bring Felix, in we families. came in on the high end of the distribution, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man. I don't know what middle class you're thinking of. But yeah. We, yeah, when I say middle class, I mean, I'm talking American. Well, we're talking well, like median a, income, $50,000 a year. <laughs> all I meant to say is that, you know, we have this political rhetoric about all these unskilled workers taking unskilled jobs. But once they're here, once immigrants are here, they are, you know, they create things. Just They like, start businesses actually yeah. at higher rates than non-immigrants. And this is one of the things that really bugs me about the H visas is that it sort of forces people to stay here as workers and doesn't take advantage of them as potential entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. And, the same, um, and the same thing goes for the J visas, the student visas. You know, you get these people who are perfectly situated to start companies and they're not allowed to because of the visa. And so it's the problem with like a lot of the, the libertarians that, that are like really into like, yeah, we need to open the border and let people come in on like, we need to expand guest worker programs massively and that's their solution to poverty. I'm like, you know, in the large scheme of things, I think we want to maintain kind of like we want to make sure that everyone has the same protections of citizenship and we should let in lots of people, but we shouldn't try to like water down what citizenship means because you want to let people like invest, start families, like you want them to have be full members of your society and not just workers to like show up and work in your fields or in your software companies. I think that's an excellent place to bring this migration edition of Slate Money to a close. Suresh and I, as 
immigrants to your fine nation. We <laughs> we plead to you, give us more rights and the rights of citizenship because give them to us and we will start companies and we will do amazing things. Um, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. We will be back next week and to be sure that you listen to the show next week, you know what to do. You subscribe, you search for us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. You leave a review there. You write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. You welcome back the one and only Audrey Quinn, who produced the show this week. Um, the managing producer is still, for at least a few more weeks, maybe one week. This last week. His actually. last week. Joel Meyer. You can say a tearful farewell to Joel. Um, you can send an email to Andy Bowers, who's the executive producer, and say, ha-ha, now you have to do all of Joel's work. Uh, and, um, check out all of his podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, the Panoply Network. It's good stuff. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.